Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast two uh, investigators slash entrepreneurs. First, let me introduce Dr. Brian Brown. Dr. Brown is a assistant professor in the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also a faculty member in obstetrics, gynecology, reproductive services at the university. Dr. Brown, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thanks, John. Also, like my pleasure to welcome Dr. Lorenzo Saletti. Uh, Dr. Saletti is a graduate and receiving his PhD from the University of Pittsburgh. He's been involved in the Innovation Institute program at the University of Pittsburgh as an executive in residence. Dr. Saletti, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, John. These two gentlemen are about to launch a commercial enterprise. Uh, taking some technology developed in the institute and making pursuing it on a commercial basis. Could one of you please give us a, a brief overview of the technology that you're working on? The technology that we're working on is an injectable scaffold material for nerve repair. Nerve injury can be particularly devastating in that it can take a very long time to heal and a long time for patients to recover from injuries. So what our technology is, is, as I said, an injectable scaffold material which both speeds and improves the quality of nerve recovery following nerve repair, and it's, it's intended as an adjunct to the current standard of care procedures. So Dr. Brown, I understand this technology was actually developed in your laboratory? So it was developed in my laboratory over about the past three years in collaboration with Dr. John Cheatham at Cornell University. So the current objective is to move this to regulatory approval and offer this technology on a commercial basis? Yes, we actually formed a, a company around this technology in April. We licensed an associated IP in June from the University of Pittsburgh. The company is called Renerva. And the goal is to take this technology to a design freeze stage, meaning to convert the current R&D level product into a full-fledged commercial and clinical grade product and to conduct small-scale clinical trials following a 510K path, leveraging an existing device as our predicate. And uh, we believe that within one year from now, we will be beginning our first-in-mand trial in the United States. So uh, let me just ask us to step aside for a second and make sure everyone knows what a 510K approval is. The 510K is a medical device classification that is made to the FDA, that can leverage the existence of an approved device. And in this case, we have identified a device that fits quite well in terms of uh, characteristics, source of the material, and indication for use. And we have already submitted a pre-510K package and dossier to the FDA. And hopefully within a month from now, we will hear from them whether they do agree with our plan forward. So just to complete the story about the 510K, it's a fairly low bar- uh, burdensome regulatory path compared to a PMA, which is a pre-market 
approval path for new medical technology again medical device classification and then there's other classifications that are you know beyond the scope of this discussion so what happens after you get the approval from the FDA there's a couple of options but the most important things is to establish with the FDA whether they will require clinical data or not for market approval in both instances we will need to generate clinical data to foster adoption in the clinical community which as you know is evidence-based so we will need to create evidence for clinicians using this product about its safety and efficacy in humans but we'll also need to generate economic-based data for providers and payers to support the purchase and the reimbursement of the product respectively. So besides the clinical investigation plan, the next steps would be to commercialize this project is to engage accounts uh, which are potential purchasers of this technology like single hospital or integrated delivery network, accountable care organization or group purchase organizations so that to convince them through the data generated in clinical trials to establish purchasing contract for this. And of course, in parallel, we will need to pursue a reimbursement strategy and execute on it to guarantee that in the future we will have payers able to pay for the product through dedicated reimbursement codes. So thank you for that uh, explanation. But before we move forward, I'd like to Just step back for a moment and clarify the market application you see for this technology. What kind of a problem is this going to solve or make easier for physicians to treat patients than what we have now? The problem, as I was mentioning before, with nerve repair is that even though nerve has the inherent ability to regenerate, often it doesn't or it it takes a very long time. And, And for patients, it can be a long waiting period to recovering any amount of function and and generally speaking those patients have to recover some amount of function before they can even start physical therapy to aid in their recovery so the injectable material that we're developing helps to speed up that process it will be used mostly as an interface technology where a surgeon has done a repair whether that's an end-to-end repair of a nerve after it's been cut or a nerve graft or some other type of repair, this material can be used in those applications to help speed up the crossing of axons over the injury site and help to speed the recovery of the nerve, which both gets patients back to function earlier, but also helps to improve the downstream quality of that repair. So there's lots of different kinds of nerves. Are there limitations on where this technology might be applied? You're right. There's uh, several different types of peripheral nerves that can get affected by trauma. I wanted to uh, compound a little bit on what Brian mentioned about nerve injury. This can occur commonly with, for example, a cut. A deep cut in the arm uh, would generate possibly an ulnar nerve transition. Or there's other cases like blown trauma in traffic accidents that also generate uh, nerve damage by compression of the tissues uh, surrounding the nerve or by overstretching. So there are several different types of peripheral nerve we believe will target initially those in the upper limbs and so ulnar, uh, median, 
in uh, radial and digital nerves as a first application, but in the future we envision the broad utilization of the technology on any type of peripheral nerve injury. So I noticed you said peripheral nerve. So for example, we have lots of inquiries about people with spinal cord injuries. No, this is specific to peripheral. That would be central and spinal cord. We're specifically targeting peripheral, which stems out of their roots in the spinal cord, but then go and innervate either the motor plate in the muscle. So they are, those are motor nerves, so that allow the communication of motion, of voluntary motion, or sensory nerve, whose signal goes in the opposite direction and communicate the sensation from the t- distal tissue to the brain. You, you started on this pathway to uh, take the technology out of the laboratory and move it into clinical and commercial availability and use. Can you just highlight the major steps involved in that and identify where you are along that pathway? We have been working on this project and we had, I would say, with confidence, the great luck of having on the support of the University of Pittsburgh. So I was mentioning we work on this project incubating the technology for the past two years. This was invented about three years ago, but for the past two years there has been, I would say, a sizable amount of funds that were raised within the university environment with the specific purpose of the risk in the technology from a commercial standpoint. And uh, so we applied, and I came on board during that initial period with this project, we applied to several sources of funds. I mean, just including three of them. One was the Coulter Technology Partnership II program here at the University of Pittsburgh as uh, fostered the creation of several different uh, spin-out out of the university or the CTSI pinch program and competition which we won like about a year ago and also we leverage a very remarkable program offered by the National Science Foundation called i and i supported us for two or three months with the goal of collecting hardcore customer discovery data across the nation and uh, we leverage that to our advantage and uh, we gather a lot of vital information on a customer discovery side and a business modeling side. So the process of commercializing our technology from the university to the industry and, and at the end to patient if this is a medical technology it's all about doing homework and the risking the vision to bring a technology. The main, most important elements are the technical validations, so collecting enough data to show that the technology in preclinical testing works, collecting regulatory data. Again, I'm talking about medical technology, understanding the, uh, the hurdles to overcome to bring a technology to market, understanding the IP landscape and having some IP protection is a vital element of this, the risk in this specific field. And I would say market analysis would be the fourth one, which we connected with secondary and primary sources, primary being this customer discovery. We interview more than 100 uh, physicians dealing with nerve repair. And again, we discover a tremendous amount, and we benefited enormously from that initiative. I believe you've already done some preliminary market analysis that has led you to the decision to proceed forward with this. Do you have some insight in terms of how big this problem is? It is a very large market. When you look at the number of patients who, who have some sort of nerve injury every year, 
the reports in the literature and, and the market reports that are available are showing that it's well over a million patients per year that are suffering some sort of nerve injury, and, and those can come from crush injuries, they can come from transections, various traumatic events. People who are in the military often experience nerve injuries in multiple ways. And so nerve injury is, is a very common event, and one of the most common that you might be familiar with is carpal tunnel. Carpal tunnel syndrome is, is a chronic compression of the nerve, and carpal tunnel alone is, is well over a million procedures performed every year to correct that nerve injury. So there, there are multiple types. There are many types of procedures for addressing different types of nerve injury, and we really think that this technology has applicability to many, if not all, of those cases. What's the standard of care now? So standard of care really depends on the type of injury. With many types of crush or stretch injuries where a full transaction hasn't happened, there's often a wait-and-see approach. As I said, there is some ability of the, the nerve to recover. So often those patients will, will have a waiting period three to six months to see what sort of natural function they can regain without surgical intervention. You know, if that doesn't happen, there may be a surgical repair procedure that's, that's undertaken. If a nerve is transected, if it can be repaired, that's usually a, an end-to-end suture repair to correct that. Often with trauma, there may be a transection of the nerve which leaves a gap. I mean, if there's a significant gap of the tissue which can't be repaired by suture, many surgeons will use a sural nerve graft, so that's a sensory nerve in the leg, to repair a motor nerve somewhere else. And so there are quite a few different types of standard of care depending on the type of injury and also depends very much on whether it's an acute versus a a chronic injury. Let me take the sural nerve that you referred to a moment ago. Well, that's the standard procedure. I understand it basically disrupts the movement of the foot where the nerve is removed. Is that correct? It doesn't disrupt the movement of the foot because it's a sensory nerve, but it will leave those who have a sural nerve graft with some deficit of sensory function in their foot. Being able to change that type of procedure or remove the need for a sural nerve graft would be a significant advance. So you described some of the steps that are necessary in terms of moving technology out of the laboratory in the clinical and commercial use. One of the big steps, of course, is clinical trial. When do you plan to have a clinical trial? Well, we have established already collaboration with three different clinical centers, two being here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The idea would be to target initially upper limb injuries of nerves, mostly ulnar and median nerve, and that have low to no gap, meaning there's not that significant portion of nerve that is. We would have a one-year follow-up, and we would track uh, not only the safety, which would be the primary endpoint, but we would also be interested in, as an endpoint, tracking the recovery of end organ function, which is, if you wish, the bottom line or the most valuable element for generating data to support adoption. And that's where most of the competitive product existing are lacking any data that would support that. So 
we would have, as I mentioned, a one-year follow-up and we would track the functional recovery following injury with or without our technology. And as I mentioned also a little earlier, we would also track some economic metrics that would be critically important first and foremost for providers to understand how an expenditure on this technology would trickle down in their overall economics. So you do some of the clinical trial, we have to wait a year, see what the outcome is. What does a startup company do in the meantime? Well, there's several different things to do. First, uh, not all the data of the clinical trial would require a full year. You know, this is data will be generated at different time point, and I believe even after one month after implantation, we would start collecting data, for example, from a pain reduction standpoint or other subjective metrics that we are going to target. But the company has several functional areas to work on, and there's plenty of work not only from I mentioned earlier to initiate a reimbursement strategy and execute on it. It's a very long process. Obtaining a dedicated code might be a three to four year process. So uh, that would be one of the functional area to pursue. R&D is another one. While we are targeting a, a limited indication for use early on, which will leverage the existence of an existing device I mentioned earlier, but we are also envisioning a very broad product pipeline and that would require R&D and investigations and also collaborations. So we are planning on having a sponsor research agreement with the University of Pittsburgh and maintaining a good contact and relationship with the University of Pittsburgh and other institutions. And there's many other, the market development and establishing sales channels would be also another very critical functional area of this business uh, that would occur parallel to clinical investigation, among many other things, including developing the IP portfolio of the company. There's so many different aspects. So there will be plenty of work to do on an operational level, including nourishing and developing our manufacturing capabilities and supply chain that will keep us very busy for the time being. Gentlemen, it takes a team to implement a uh, project like this. Uh, You mentioned some of the people, are there others involved? Early on, John Cheatham and I, John is from Cornell, had been working on this as primarily a research project and had some encouragement from both Cornell and, and Pitt to participate in some of their technology translation initiatives. For example, the first year workshops here at Pitt and the, the pre-seed workshop at Cornell University. And through those, we came to believe that there was some interest in, in commercialization potential for this technology. And we started applying for things like the Coulter Translational Partners 2 program, the CTSI Pinch program, and the NSF I-Corps through the University of Pittsburgh that allowed us to get some funding to start exploring the commercialization potential of the, the technology. And it was that time we started looking for a business mentor who could commit some time to the project and and we were introduced to the Innovation Institute to Lorenzo who came on board about two years ago and and really from there we developed the story over the last two years to the point where we really do believe in the technology and believe in the potential both clinically and commercially to the point where we wanted to try to license this from the university and start the company. 
when I came on board, as Brian mentioned, I got about two years ago, I had the luck of finding a team, at least at the beginning of a team that would have then formed the co-founder pool, which has been, of course, Brian, John Cheatham from Cornell, but also Paul Garner, who is a neurosurgeon, highly respected nationally and internationally, and co-chair of cranial-based surgery at UPMC. And we all decided to get together and start this company and as co-founder, and each of us has uh, an official role within the company. And so it's been a tremendous experience, not only to interact with a very complementary group of co-founders, but also to build over this past two years a network and an expanded team for the company, which included contract manufacturing organization from the Minneapolis area, a regulatory expert, IP consultants. It's been a, a really broad and exciting journey to these days. It's been an exciting story, and it's an exciting pathway that you're following. Uh, Dr. Brown and Dr. Soletti, uh, I know our listeners will want to follow up with some of the information that you've shared. Do you have a website for your, your company? Yes, we are www.renerva.com. It's R-E-N-E-R-V-A. Yes. And I understand you're also hiring? Yeah, we are in two positions for our laboratory in Pittsburgh. A product development scientist and an R&D technician and information can be found on our website. Very good. Thank you. Well, Dr. Brown and Dr. Sloletti, it's been my pleasure to have you join us today and share with us your pioneering work. We extend best wishes for the future and congratulations on the milestones you reached to get to this point. We thank McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring this podcast series. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com and thank you for listening. <laughs>